You won't be here. Gosh, no, you, just, you don't want to have the whole climax of the, do, of the whole I thing. I do. I do. I'm leaving Colorado. Is yeah. close to you? No. <laughs> you should not. I'm, having, I'm having one, so that's, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Exactly. Here's more, Brian. I just we're going to begin now, so I, I, I always cut it, shut it down. We try to get 9, 10, 30, try to get that 11, 30-ish, depending on how. So, let us pray. Blessed Lord, has caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning. Grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We got two more weeks today and next week on Revelation, and then we'll take a break for uh, until after Labor Day. And if between now and next week you want to Offer a suggestion about what you might want to do next year. That's okay. You can email me. So uh, there we are. Um, there'll be mass. No, mass will continue. Yeah. Thursday morning mass, uh, Tuesday noon mass. Otherwise, now. We have Father Hayden here now full time, which means even if I off somewhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it um it always dawns on me in going through Revelation, which I really enjoy doing, um, that to get it, you really have to understand the interpretive framework of it before you start jumping to conclusions. And we said at the beginning of our study that, you know, not only did we say Revelation is highly symbolic, um, St. John said that, that, that God sent and signified the message to John by an angel. So it said at the beginning, we're gonna be dealing with signs and symbols and images. So the first point is, you never, you have to first ask, okay, here is this symbol. What does this symbol mean? And ask that in the framework of the Bible. What does that symbol mean? What does that symbol mean in the Old Testament and in, and in the larger New Testament? Because you, you, you'll really run amok if you try to just say that a beast just is like any old beast. And it's not related, say, to the beasts of Daniel. Or and and when you talk about things like sea or whatever it is you're talking about, there's a history of interpretation. So when the symbol appears, you that's why revelation takes effort. And it's why when people aren't willing to put the effort in, they get it wrong. You have to understand where does this come from? What does it mean? And it's it, it strikes me too as a contemplative book. It's a book that gives you a glimpse into what God is doing, a glimpse into heaven through symbols, but it doesn't explain everything. 
if you need to explain everything, that's where people get in trouble because they work it all out in detail or try to. Um, the other thing that's really, really important about Revelation is to understand that John, in his gospel and in Revelation, operates from a perspective of what we would call an inaugurated eschatology. Now, I've explained this before, too, and if I do it for five more years, it might make a little bit of sense. Um, but the, it's a, that's the technical word that we would refer to it as, but it means that in Christ, the kingdom has come in a real way, so that it's already here or inaugurated. And the, and the extension of that is the gift of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, which we all receive through baptism and faith. So we are now in the kingdom of God. It's a present reality that we fully participate in, although it's not completed fully. But John's language, when he talks about... Um, for example, throughout Revelation, um, 24 elders being seated in heaven. And, and Jesus said, okay, well, later on, the church will be in heaven. Well, that's not what he means. He means because you have the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians said, I've repeated this verse again and again, Christ has raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places where God has raised us up. So we are there. That's the reality of our existence because of this inaugurated eschatology. We have eternal life. It's not something we hope to get on the last day. So John speaks of living and dead in terms of those inaugurated kingdom realities, not in terms of natural, what it looks like, just looking at it, because that's what it looks like from heaven. It looks like it's completed to God. It's already done. And so that's the, um, that perspective needs to be understood, both in John's gospel and in Revelation. Um, and any further with that. So the highly symbolic nature symbols need to be tracked through the Bible to find out what they mean and then brought to bear what it means when John is using it. And inaugurated eschatology, the kingdom has really come in Christ in spirit so that the fullness of the promises made by God can be said to be already fully experienced, even if it's not completed yet. And that'll make some sense out of our chapter today. Now, you say that we're, we are already Let me clear about that. I'm not saying it. John and the Bible are saying it. I'm, I'm, I'm proclaiming it. Okay, but, 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 um, they're going to be a test or something, just like you said, at the end of every lesson. Any questions? Yeah. Oh, I mean, all of life is a kind of test because the 
Christian life mirrors the life of Christ, in whose narrative defines it, what happened with Christ while he went into the wilderness to be tested. And he had to endure, but um, none of those things that he endured ever separated him from God. He was never not God's eternally begotten Son. And there was never anything but the certainty of hope that after he died, he would be raised. And so that's what I'm saying is our status as children of God, baptized into Christ, like Jesus was revealed to be God's son in baptism, but to be God's beloved children, gives us this status. It does require, the status requires faithfulness, which means not sinless perfection, but perseverance in the life of prayer, you know, and, and like children, when we fall, come back, but, but the promise doesn't go away. And that's, and that's, that's a perspective John has here. So we'll talk more about it as we go through the text. Okay. Revelation 21. 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And these are always disconcerting things for people who say, well, I want to go down and walk by the ocean, and now you better just get to like your rivers. <laughs> Um, we've already talked about the new heaven and the new earth. And what what did we... Now, here's the test. Because I'm going to get a bunch of blanks, I know. At least... I'm gonna, next year, I'm going to ask more questions, because I'm not going to put up with... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, what does he mean by a new heaven and earth? Does he mean the complete and utter destruction of every living thing we see and a completely new one? Or does he mean something else? What does he mean? What what does where is the creation centered in the scriptures? Okay. So the, the, the we're, so let's let's just trace that. I mean going back obviously to the um, first creation, there was a garden. Um, and there actually is a, a theology of the creation by a commentator that it means that God intended to create a cosmic temple. But, but the stuff of creation is the nature of the interaction between God and man. Um, and in the so moving forward, the creation fall and into redemption. So the um, the covenant on Mount Sinai that God made with Moses would have been conceived as a, a, a creation, a new creation. The old one fell through sin. We have to solve the problem of sin. And now we create a new heavens and a new earth, which means a new way that God and man interact so as to, to, to have peace and shalom of the creation. So what we've been talking about 
when throughout Revelation with all the creation imagery, the trees are dying and being burned up, is really a symbolic way of, of, of describing the fact that Jerusalem is being destroyed in the temple and the old heavens and the new earth, the old um, world order centered in the temple is being destroyed. And there's a new heavens and a new earth, which is the new covenant way of interacting that God interacts with. Um, there's some chairs over there, Vicki, that are just sitting, you drag one in. Um, in Christ, symbolized by our Eucharistic liturgy, where this is, and symbolized by what we see in Revelation 4 and 5. This is this is the worship now. It's, it's, the, it's the 4 and 20 elders of the church that is now seated and, and worshiped right before the throne of God in the spirit. And this is the church's status always. This is the new creation that we participate in right now. And, and so if, if you don't, um, we can go through the scriptures and, and highlight how this is so when we look like in the Old Testament, the prophets describe the judgment's going to come on Israel. They'll describe it in terms of the destruction of the creation. The moon, the stars, the trees, all those things are involved because we're overthrowing the old covenant structure, the covenant structure due to the people's disobedience. That's So that's new heaven and new earth means a new world order, the world order centered in the te- in temple has been replaced by a new world order centered in God's resurrected people who now worship God in spirit and in truth. Once you get this, it makes a lot of sense out of New Testament passages like, I think I sent these out to you, 2 Peter 3, the elements will melt with fervent heat. And like all of the Bible prophecy people say, that, that means every, the whole world's, I mean, it's a pretty frightening thing. Uh, but if you understand that the elements melting with fervent heat, after all, the temple was burned, the old structure being done away with the new coming, the symbolic nature of it that even Peter fully understood. We tend to put up a, a modern, non-symbolic, scientific, non-poetic meaning on this that, that, that misses entirely what's being said. You see it in Isaiah 65 and 66 too, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And, and, and um, when you understand that life is centered in God's covenant, that's where life is centered and from that comes God's relation with the whole world, that's why we can understand the covenants as creations. And this is a new heavens and a new earth. We've judged the harlot, the unfaithful Old Testament bride. We've revealed now the New Testament you know, people of God. And now, you know, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. John sees this is the new thing I've seen. The first heaven and earth had passed away with the temple's destruction. And there was no more sea. So let's talk about this for people. This, in the, in the Bible, the sea is, is seen as the source, the origin of evil. We've talked a lot in, um, in the Revelation, there's been five or six passages about the abyss. 
the fallen star, the evil one went down with a key unlocked and let demons out of the abyss. That scene is the bottom of the sea. And the, 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 one of the beasts was the beast from the sea. And there's a whole mythology which is beyond both my knowledge and the time we have. But if you go back to the creation in Genesis, one of the, the, the Tanim, the sea monster, and the sea creatures are throughout, you know, and, and they, take, they get, take on a personification of evil in certain places. So it, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't speak here to the geography of what the life will look like after the resurrection of the dead and the life will become. It speaks of there's no more evil. There's no more evil. Force of evil. The other place we get this um, sea is the symbol of evil. When Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee, a great storm arises, and he's, he's sleeping, and it's like, ah, you know, he, he goes, peace, be still, which is kind of an exorcism language. He commands the, the, the turbulent, unmanageable sea, which is seen as a manifestation of evil, and it obeys him. Well, we don't have to interpret day and age. We don't have to take that interpretation of this. This. Or, or, that you can't go surfing without being dangerous. I mean, how do we see we get life? Yeah. Well, God created it. God created it. It's, it's symbolic. There's no more sea because there's no more abyss. The abyss is, it's, 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 he's, he's defeated evil is the idea of that symbolic. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We've already seen... Um, the bride in Revelation 19. Um, and I gave a reference to Hebrew. I've got to hear what I was. <laughs> yeah, oh, so, so here's uh, the Holy City, New Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 says, um, it talks about you in Hebrews 12 he's talking about you haven't come to the Old Testament Mount Sinai which was on fire and all this kind of stuff but he says but you've come to Mount Sinai to the city of living God to the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God the judge of all into the spirits of just men made perfect. And it's interesting that language of Hebrews, you've come to this now. Uh, so there's clearly a time when the New Jerusalem will be perfected, but it's coming down out of heaven, and it's coming out of heaven because that's its origin. It's not, this is not a, a literal image of space travel. It's it's this is where where our origin, the origin of our um, redemption, our holiness, our glory is not earth. It's not us. It's what God has, what Christ has done. So we're we're um, 
or his new creation. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So, the tabernacle, or the dwelling place of God, is with men. Um, so, this is simply, you know, the extended truth of the New Testament. Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means what? God's with us. Tabernacle. And then um, the incarnation, he came to be with us. In Pentecost, he came to be closer to us. And here's what John 14:23 says. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. When? Not, it's a realized eschatology, excuse me, it's an inaugurated eschatology that obviously has completion, but it's, so that's how the tabernacle of God, it, there's a time clearly when um, death will be finally vanquished and it will be fully there, but it's there now. <clears throat> that's the inaugurated eschatology perspective of this. that quote from Ezekiel 37 will queers about what that says too. Jack said, I, I spoiled it last week. I, all the verses I quoted, I put the whole text in the notes I sent you. Now I just gave some things you had to look some stuff up. Special verses. Huh? I like the verses. Well, I know that way, that's why, but yet yeah, I make you do work. Too. <laughs> Hard to read. <laughs> Yeah, so here, it's interesting, in, in Ezekiel, this, this is a significant passage to this, because in Ezekiel 37, a passage we read at the Easter Vigil every year, but it's the Valley of Dry Bones, where Israel is brought back to life, because um, they think their hope is cut off and they're all lost. And, uh, God, and Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, son of man, speak to these bones, say to these bones, you know, come to life and spirit enters and all that. Well, that was Ezekiel speaking after the destruction of the temple in the Old Testament when the Babylonians destroyed the first temple, Solomon's temple. So when we think now that we're, we're talking here about the destruction of the second temple, the, the feeling would be that, that uh, all hope is lost for Israel in the covenant. But what we got, what we got in Revelation throughout, is a resurrection, first of our Lord, and then of, of, of people in Him. We talked about this last week. This is the first resurrection, which we said would refer to what? When? And, uh, By means of what is the first resurrection? Not at the end. But how does that apply to us? Baptism and faith. We die and rise. So John is treating baptism as he does in his gospel, 
as a resurrection that would then absolutely apply to Ezekiel's image of resurrection, where an Israel that's being judged is cut off and hopeless, but God breathes the spirit into it and raises Israel to life. And then at the end of Ezekiel 37, he says, um, he, he says, after the resurrection, moreover, I'll make a covenant of peace with them and it should be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they should be my people. Almost verbatim from Revelation, which is a consequence of the resurrection. And yes, there's a, a second resurrection the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But the first resurrection is the resurrection to life through faith in Jesus Christ in the water of baptism. That's a reality now we live in. God dwells with us now. So when it says that um, the tabernacle of God is with men, he dwells with us now. Yes, there's a fulfillment. That's the tension of inaugurated eschatology. It's, there's a degree in which it's already here and a degree to which it's not yet fulfilled. And that's the proper tension of the Christian life, the longing for the completion of that which is now enjoyed in part. Verse four. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Um, again, um, there, this will be true in a full and final way. When the last enemy is destroyed, 1 Corinthians 15.26, where he says the last enemy destroyed is death. But it is true now from the perspective of heaven, where death has no power over those who participate in the first resurrection. We were told that last chapter. Blessed are those who participate in the first resurrection. Over them, the second death has no power. Death has no power. We, we have a life that can't be touched, and therefore, from that eternal perspective, there is a joy. And in part of the, the tensioned way we experience that now is that um, there is sadness in this world. And one, I think, that the, the important things in the Christian life to understand is that sadness and mourning can coexist with peace and joy. And it's a really unhealthy spirituality develops when we don't allow them to coexist. When we think that to have joy or peace in Jesus means to pretend you're not sad about things that are sad. But as, as our funeral epistle says, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. 
And the difference between our sadness, even in our ordinary grief, and the world's sadness is we're experiencing a loss. But in the midst of the loss, we, we are united with a crucified one who himself experienced loss. And we have a hope that somehow God's going to make it all work. But that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And so I really, this is something we stress a lot, but it's hard to, to incorporate into our practice. But I just want to reiterate and reiterate it again. Because we live in, a, in especially a Christian culture where if there's sadness, we're going to want to cheer you up. We're going to want to, and it's like, we don't have to do that. If you're sad about something, you're entitled to your sadness about the thing. And it doesn't mean you don't believe that, that, that God is, is sovereign, but it's not healthy when something hurts. If you don't experience the emotion associated with the pain, that emotion goes, goes into exile and it sneaks out somewhere else later on in inappropriate places. This is why healing is often accomplished in a Christian life when we grow in our prayer and all of a sudden emotions trigger us and we're like, where'd that come from? Because, you know, they just said a word to me that kind of set me off. Well, we go, look, where's that come from? We might have to go back and, and get in touch with grief we've not processed because we had the, the feeling that if we felt it, we couldn't handle it. And our world is like that. So we, we act like it's okay. And it's, it's really the, to me, the, the bad part of a lot of contemporary Christian funerals were all celebration and no mourning. There's, there's, there, there's mourning that leads to joy. There's mourning, but in hope. And it's precisely, it's the same kind of thing for a point of reference in terms of the pathos of life that we experience on Good Friday. We know Easter's coming. But we're going to make a confession, we're going to cry, we're going to mourn, because the sad, it's sad that we, that we as fallen people crucified the Son of God, and in our own unfaithfulness, we participated in that. And so we can mourn and work through it. That's a, an appropriate emotion that pertains to the human condition or our participation in it. And when we actually process it and work it through and take responsibility for our stuff and work through Good Friday, Easter comes, and when we have a real sense of the Spirit and a real sense of joy. If we pretend that that's not there, we're always pretending we're happy and fighting away the feelings that tell us there's stuff we haven't dealt with. So this is enormously important. So to say that there's no death or sorrow or crying or pain is, is to say that, yes, ultimately there won't be, but now existentially for us, it is that we embrace that all in hope. And we don't have to be afraid to mourn. Because blessed are those who mourn. They're going to be comforted. And that's the paradox of, of and, and actually, I, this is why I think in our own spirituality of, of prayer, that don't run from your pain, but make it a space of union, communion. You're closest to our Lord who said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? when you experience your own alienation from God and others, and that becomes a space of real healing and prayer. So, enjoy. It, it's a source of joy because Christ meets us there and, and enters into that and creates a new thing out of that.
And if we don't do that, the joy we have is going to be let's pretend. And too much of the Christianity I'm around is that. It's like, it's not like I'm not happy about Jesus with you. It's just I feel like there's things you're not talking about. No more death, no more sorrow, no crying, no pain. The former things have passed away. And God can already see the completion of the new creation. And we can already see it a little bit in the spirit. We can taste it. It's what gives us, it's what keeps us from despair because we know. We hold on to the people. It's what kept Joe through all the conversation. I know my Redeemer lives. He's going to stand. That's really why we And, and actually, the ability, this is another thing I would say, is the ability to feel the joy will correspond with the ability to feel the grief. That emotionality is a capacity. And if you can't go down and feel this, you probably can't feel this. You can just live in a little sort of middle figures of mild denial and mild happiness. <laughs> So in First Corinthians uh, fifteen fifty four through fifty eight talks about that. You know, uh, the, the fifteen. Everyone should should be familiar with First Corinthians fifteen, which is the most extended discussion of the ultimate resurrection. The trumpet will sound. Uh, the dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. Verse 54 of chapter 15. So when this corruptible is put in incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 5. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. Again, the beginning of the new creation. And um, I, I sent out a verse with the email, but I, uh, from Second uh, Corinthians 5.17, where St. Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, I make all things new. Right now. Yes, there's a growth into that which we're becoming, but old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So when he who sat on the throne said, I make all things new, this is not just a future idea. It's a current reality. And we participate that in our prayer. We participate in, in the Eucharist. The Eucharist should be seen as a, we continually 
experience again the process by which we're made new, but it's not a static circle because we progressive cycle. We continue to grow into seeing ourselves more clearly, experiencing grace in new ways, growing in new ways. Verse 6, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. This is the idea of salvation by grace. You just have to know you're thirsty and ask for it. Um, think of the story of the um, Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus says, give me a drink. And she says, what are you talking, what are you giving me? A, why, why are you having talking to me? And he says, well, if you knew who this was, I, you'd ask me for water, and I'd give you uh, the water I give would be a spring welling up to eternal life. Um, so it is done here. Um, corresponds a little bit uh, linguistically with the it is finished on the cross. But it's not the same word. The it is finished on the cross is a form of one of my favorite words to, to bandy about, like as if I knew any Greek, but not to be dangerous, but the word telos, which means completion. And the reason I talk a lot about it is I think we don't understand, like whenever the, um, a lot of times New Testament, the word the end, is, the end has come, or the word end, St. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. But his word is telos, which really means the completion, the goal of all things. And so when, when Jesus says it is finished, it means the work of new creation has been completed. That's speaking of um, the work on the cross, which is irre irrepeatable. It's done. Now here, uh, it is, is completed there. This word, it is done, is something more like uh, come into existence, and it's speaking more now of the destruction of the temple and the emergence of the new covenant people of God as the focus of new creation, which is a consequence of the cross, but different. It's a creative act rooted in that once for all world. So it is it's something like here it is done, mean it's come into existence. Because the cross and resurrection, which it is finished the work, that worked its way out in the judgment on the unfaithful people and the vindication of the faithful believers, which is the situation we get in John 9. Verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now, what's interesting about this verse, because we just had a series of, it is all done. And we're all in it, but now there's a challenge, he who overcomes. And this is the same word um, we encountered in, in the letter to every church back in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There was a warning 
know, I have this against you. And it's always the promise that he who overcomes, and there was some promise, oh, you know, give him a white stone, or I'll write his name on my forehead. And we talked about the word overcoming there, meaning really conquering. It's 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 Nikao, which Nike Shoe Company took that Greek word. But it, the problem with overcome, I think it's a little bit soft. It can be um, overcoming, but it's it's really who conquers. Um, and uh, that is tr- sometimes translated in New Testament as overcome and sometimes as conqueror, depending on your translation. But like, for example, in Romans, where, where St. Paul says, in all these things were more than conquerors. So he who conquers, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. So we already have this thing in the inaugurated eschatology, but we must go out and conquer because we're gonna, it's going to be tested, just like Jesus was tested. As we follow him in faith and faithfulness, our end will be like his. So the dangerous temptation, the things that distract us and draw us away. So it's the process faithfulness that leads to us. This is correct. And this is why the church has always understood that the the faith that saves us includes faithfulness. And, And famously, St. Augustine wrote that includes perseverance. And perseverance is what shows faith to be real versus illusory. Look at the parable of the sower and the seed. See it on the on the rocky soil. It sprouted up. It looked great until you know there wasn't any root or the seed among the thorns. It, it started growing until it had to compete with some stuff and it just kind of so so. There's this tension here, uh, which we see just in the life of, of this is what this interpretation makes sense. We just understand it describes reality to the fact that we already live in this reality of union, communion with God, but we're all going to go home or wherever we're going to go, and we're going to have some temptations, things that would, would pull us away, make us angry, discontented, want something you don't have, you know, all those things. And from the standpoint of the spiritual life, those are temptations. And it is, it is why the inaugurated eschatology perspective teaches us to, um, we're in the world as witnesses, but we can't be co-opted by, by the world, by its mode of argument, by its promise, and it's a, always attention. Because it, that's, that's what the world... Um, we, we see this throughout the scriptures. Israel through the wilderness went the promised land, and then they become rich. They became rich, and they they didn't need God so much anymore. So that's that, that's why for us in the spiritual life, wealth is a blessing and a temptation. And I don't know anybody who is really wealthy who's not very generous who doesn't get overcome by it. You have to. You have to. You, if if you like, and that's the temptation. Um, status, success, is a blessing and a temptation. Anti-graveyard, and all of a sudden. Um, it's interesting, uh, as a digression on this, when I was sequestered with my uh, COVID, I watched more TV. I watched, I watched mostly documentary. I watched a uh, history of country music. And I also watched something, a documentary on 
evangelical music called Jesus music. What's interesting in both cases is to see how music develops and gets corrupted. Um, it, it started out, almost all music in the sort of origins in the early 20th century America was in working class communities and the sort of black and white experience are very similar and they had a lot of crossover, the jazz, the country, the fiddler, and they were grassroots people who told the stories of the suffering of life in ways that people sang because they didn't have TVs to sit around and watch. They sang together, hung out, and they started watching them. And then it got popular, and then it, you know, all of a sudden a guy becomes, starts touring around, and he starts getting money, and then people start worshiping him, and all of a sudden, you know, they have drug problems. You know, I, I think things like, um, it's interesting, two figures that come out in that are Elvis and Johnny Cash. There's an Elvis movie I haven't seen yet. I'm told it's good, but it tells a little bit about what happens. And from the standpoint of the spiritual life, therefore, that success is a temptation. And that's why today we celebrated St. Bonaventure, who's a Franciscan, but, but St. Francis is so famous he took all the money and care from his dad and went up to the street, took his clothes off, and said, I'm, I'm walking away from it all. And we have to always try to adopt that posture of, of dispossession, as St. Paul would say, as as having nothing but, but possessing all things. And, and, and it, it is why it's hard to maintain faith when we, when stuff, cause, cause, you know, and all of a sudden we try to, we try to protect ourselves against every danger. That's a big thing now. We think we can, church policies, wear four masks, never do this. It's like, no, you're still going to die. And you're, and, it's not like you shouldn't be, be, be safe and cautious, but you, so, so when we talk about he who conquers, the spiritual life has to be the paramount thing. And how do, what we're trying to do is, is stay in that life, in the world, we're trying to be faithful in our witness. We might have to say something prophetic. It doesn't mean you can't be involved in the world, but you have to be very careful because there's no question that over the past few years, many Christians have entered into the world in a way that they've just adopted their mode of argumentation. And the minute you enter into a sphere, when you adopt its its frame of approach, you're just in it, and and you're going to be evaluated by it, and then you're going to get angry, and then you're going to. So you have to look at that. This is no. You have to work out your own vocation, what God is calling you to do. But this framework, we have this life, and conquering means holding on to it against the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, striving to remain blameless till the day. But that, that can only be done in the spirit. So as we're faithful in the spirit, then... That's why, that's why we always talk about the life of prayer, yeah. always talk about staying in it, because it's the only way we can do it. And in community, I think it's yes. absolutely right. You can't... It's very hard to do it all by yourself. Okay. <laughs> now we're talking. Now I can help you. <laughs> so, um, he will overcome who inherit all things. Obvious God, he'll be my son. And note, this is not a, a, a gender. This is like there's no daughters in the kingdom. Son is the heir. Christ, the firstborn son, is the heir. So in Christ, women are sons. This is the meaning of the Galatians passage where he says, as many of you 
uh, you've all become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, as many as you're baptized into him, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, you're all heirs. And that's the radical part of the new covenant is that in the old covenant, only males received the covenant mark, circumcision. Women were in the covenant by virtue of their connection to, to the male of the head of household. In the new covenant, men and women received the mark of circumcision. Everyone is saved in relationship to the male head who is Christ. So that's, but that's, so the sons here doesn't have any, uh, it just means heir. Look at the Galatians 3, 26, 27 passage to see how St. Paul uses son to see, to talk about men and women too. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars to have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, what's interesting about this this list of um, bad things that people... uh, And notice what... There's something here that's important in the language of the spiritual life. Um, These words here are not... um, They're, they're the things that are practiced by people so that they come to characterize who they are. And um, it's a little different than in the spiritual life where, uh, you know, we struggle with, for example, idolatry. We struggle with some idolatry. You might, you know, worship something too much. And that's a temptation to do this. It's not become our identity. Our identity remains children of God. But outside of this relationship with God in Christ through the Spirit, people are characterized by these things. What's interesting in the New Testament is that in the language of the New Testament, many Christians were also characterized by these things. And this passage, I think I sent it out to you, but 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, where uh, St. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is a very interesting line. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So salvation is to be brought out of that milieu of the world, which is which which is characterized by these things, into sonship, in which our sins are no longer counted against us. So righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ, but it issues forth, in, it, it produces a new nature and behavior that we grow into progressively. So it doesn't mean there's never a stumble into something that might be somewhere connected to the list, but that doesn't characterize us. And that's something repented of. We come, and that's how we conquer. We conquer sin by the blood of Christ. So the distinction is not between those who are naturally good and those who are naturally bad. It is between the sinner who has been redeemed and those who refuse to repent. 
That's why the first um, is there a cowardly and unbelieving because it takes courage to believe. Be afraid to stand up for Jesus in the hour with Peter in the courtyard. <laughs> All those kind of things. Uh, and, and so therefore these other things characterize people. It also relates here to the um, Galatians passage about the fruits of the Spirit, where he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions. It's interesting in these lists, just, you know, it's not a role here, yeah, all these senses. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. If you didn't find yourself in there somewhere, I. Um, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom. You cannot give yourself over to these things. But he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. And so that life in the Spirit is characterized by a decreasing captivity to the flesh in an increasing growth in the spirit and, and manifestation of that life. It is a battle, and we're going to fight these. And so sometimes in our early stages of growth, we're, you know, we're, we, we fall back more. But it's in the spirit, through prayer, that the life is manifested in us in these things, and we put the old off. And that's the other thing about the baptismal language of put off the old man, which is like taking off the old clothes and put on the new meaning. We do that every time we come to prayer. We have to do it again and again and again. So all those bad behaviors have their part in the lake, burns and fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We've already seen that the person who does not participate in the first resurrection, baptism of faith, is destined for the second death. This is restated here. This does not require us to judge everybody who's never heard the gospel and all that kind of stuff. It's, 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 but it makes the point that there's salvation in Christ and the new creation, and there's everything else. There's life in Christ, and there's everything else, which is not life. This is something that the church has lost in many places and areas of confidence to say. And it's what's handicapped the gospel in our culture. It gives way to a sort of sappy universalism where everyone's got their own way. No. Jesus is Lord, and he's not the equivalent of, of Muhammad or Buddha or anybody. Now, that doesn't require us to say that everybody who's in those groups going to hell and going to fire, we don't know how God judges. But if they're saved, it will be for the work of the Son of God who saves all mankind. And the, and the timidness in maintaining the gospel is, is, the, is the failure of the gospel. Because if, 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 if Jesus didn't do this, if this isn't the result of the Son of God becoming man and dying, why are we here? If any way gets you there... If I go to church, oh, you, anyway, anyway, you all, okay, ball game on. There's a lot of things to go do. If that gets me there, my best effort without Christ. So, 
the Bible doesn't say that. Um, and, uh, and moreover, it's unloving for us to say that because we're witnesses. How do we offer salvation to a world if we won't be witnesses to it? If we tell people that what they're doing is just fine. Now, when we don't tell people what they're doing is just fine, we're not always so popular. And then, but that's the cowardly. You've got to be able to, again, this is not, we're all, we're just, not everyone's called to stand in the middle of the street and, you know, yell and scream. That's not even a very effective way. For example, I, I, I would, you know, go hiking down sometimes, like by the beach or by Huntington Beach. You always get the fundamentalist after the sign. Yeah, it's like, somehow that's probably not communicating the gospel in the most effective way. Um, it's, it's, it's a truth poorly, you know, so we, you know, we advocate really in our motives, you know, we share conversations and, and we're ambassadors, especially for the unbelieving. The, um, the more, um, and St. Paul is clear about this in his writings, the more, you know, the more uh, firm attitude about morality should be, especially within the church. No better. And that's why I believe that our own witness um, as uh, Christians now is to, first of all, judgment begins at the household of God. The reason we haven't had um, an impact in the culture, we've been too much like it. Even now, when people are, you know, I mean, the hot button issue being abortion is just floating around. I mean, the problem is statistics for people who call themselves Christians aren't much different. We have to understand, before we go yelling at the world, we, we don't do this. This is not how we live. If we, and if you, if you had fault, there's a way to be healed and cleansed and forgiven. But we don't, we have been brought into a new way of life. We have to model that new way of life. Not, not primarily yell about, you know, and we want, and the, and the problem, it doesn't bring life. The, the funny thing about this whole thing is never has, has something like the sexual revolution been such a failed experiment and people just want to keep doubling down. It's, if, if it were making people so happy, why aren't they happy? Why is everybody so angry who wants to... So, um, we're witnesses, and this is the reality too, not only the witnesses, not our, there's a life here that we should have, a, it should bring us a joy. A joy in life in Christ, because we were such for some of you. We've experienced this thing, and we are out to the world that shouldn't should be a you know an ambassadorial. And it that's why I think also the our witness is best to people, not broadcast in these get in these internet arguments or yelling back and forth. No one gets converted there. But if you talk to somebody who's hurting and say come, and we have a way of reaching out. So, um, yeah, that's a witness and just, you know, some contours of that. We might go a little over today. Sorry about that. Yeah, you can't have the whole new hips and new earth described in an hour or something. You need an extra 10 minutes. Uh,
verse 9. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife, the lamb's wife. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, this is like a lot of things in the in the revelation is a repeated reference we've already had the we've already had um holy city coming down we've already seen the bride before but now we're going to get a special revelation of that um then you have for god having the glory of god her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And it's sort of the angel, one of the angels who, who, who was the angel of judgment is now an angel revealing the glory of the new. The, the bride is on a great and high mountain. She's exalted. The harlot was judged in the wilderness. That was her natural place. Coming down out of heaven, she's God's creation. We've talked about um, Having the glory of God, this is significant because the glory of God has a biblical history. The glory of God took up residence in the temple when Solomon in the Old Covenant blessed the temple. I want to say it's 1 Kings chapter 8, but it's around there. It's a big prayer of dedication. And after his prayer of dedication, the glory cloud overwhelmed the temple became, and God took up residence. And um, at the end of the Old Covenant, when, when Israel, when the Old Covenant Israel was judged, the prophet Ezekiel describes how the glory left. And, and it, it, that, that the glory got, went up from the Holy of Holies, went over the threshold, and went out of the city by way of the Mount of Olives. So when our Lord enters Holy Week, Jerusalem, by way of the Mount of Olives, the glory returning and weeps over the city, it's, it's the glory coming back in, 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 the, in the face of Jesus. Um, and then Jesus brings the glory, but Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, so the Spirit dwells within us, that is the fulfillment, the glory now dwells in us. We are God's tabernacle. We are the new covenant temple, the people, not the church. We, we gather in a building, and buildings become significant as the historical and geographical place where we encounter God, but, but the focus of the encounter is the people. Now, there's an interesting thing here um, that, and if you ever really want to, like, really connect Revelation with the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and you like to read long and tedious things, uh, pick up Josephus, Jewish historian, a book called The War of the Jews, and he chronicles in detail. But he says an interesting thing happened in AD 66 on Pentecost. Um, and here's what he says. Um, I'll excerpt this one. He says, moreover, um, the eastern gate of the inner court of the temple, which was of brass and vastly heavy, had and had been with difficulty shut by 20 men. 
and rested upon, you know, it was very heavy. He says, um, now those that kept, wa uh, oh, excuse me, and which was then made of one, was seen to be opened of its own accord about the sixth hour of the night. And um, this was accompanied by a guy who went around Jerusalem saying, whoa, whoa. And then they heard a voice that said, let us remove hence, which is that the idea of God finally leaving the city again. Whatever residue of presence there was, when that finally the gate opens and God leaves, 66 AD on Pentecost, the same day the Spirit came upon New Covenant people, that opened it up for, for, for destruction. And Josephus says a number of things that make you, um, he says things like how bad the, the Jewish people were. He says, never was a people as worthy of judgment as this nation. A, he's a Jewish historian, not a Christian. Just, just say that. So the glory, my, the point of that was the, 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 the bride of Christ has the glory of God. The glory has left the old covenant and now resides in the people of the new covenant. In verse 12, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three on the north, three gates in the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And you talked with me, had a gold reed to measure the temple, its gates, and its wall. The city was laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and they measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height were equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. Now, this corresponds to an image in Ezekiel, I think I sent it out in chapter 48, where Ezekiel has an image of the rebuilt temple, um, where the three, the gates of the, of the 12 tribes, three on each side, and um, then it, it's rooted also, he said, the foundations, he says here that uh, The names of the apostles were the foundations. This comes from Ephesians. It says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, whom the whole building being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Perfectly relates to the image of, of the temple that John has. The city is a perfect cube, and um, regarding Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 6, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, overlaid with gold, and expanded holy of holies, bigger cube. And 
it gets on. I'm not actually going to read the, 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 the last verses. It talks about 18, 19, 20, and 21. All these jewels, jasper, streets for gold, uh, sapphire, calcite, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite. Um, this relates to the stones on the high priest's breastplate in the Old Testament. Um, Exodus 28, 15 through 21. Um, and it's transferring the image of Old Testament priesthood and Old Testament temple to the new covenant people of God. And we can dig into it and find many, many interesting mysteries about this. But to understand the symbol, that's what all this jewelry meant. It's rooted in the Old Testament temple in the jewels on the priest's breastplate and the image that Ezekiel had of the rebuilt temple. And it applies it to the new covenant people of God. And John, so therefore, this is the fulfillment of those things, is the point. And the end of the, the chapter. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The sun has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God illuminated it. And was it. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. There shall by no means enter it anything that defiles the causes of abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Um, the only thing I'll, I'll say in closing uh, is that uh, two things. No light there. If we remember in Genesis, um, there was a proclamation, let there be light that took place way before the creation of the sun and moon. So what this is saying is that that eternal light now illumines at the end like it did at the beginning before sun and moon. The other thing about nothing unclean entering, it clearly posits a distinction between you know, the visible and the invisible within the reality. And there's always in within the reality of the visible, that sort of remnant reality of those who, who it's an exhortation to take seriously the thing, not going through the outward motions of faith, but to take seriously the call to be renewed and purified. Ten minutes over. That's mostly we've ever done. A lot. So let us pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Day and forevermore. With you all, good to see you, Mimi, Elizabeth, Ruth.
Thanks. It's good to have a group here. I, I thought it, for a while we scared everyone off the Revelation study, but now we, we have one. Uh, Last week in the car, I was about to miss it. Yeah.